What are some things in your life that you wouldn't trade for anything in the world? Now, we have to narrow the field pretty quickly here because if we were to just have an open list, we'd have a long, long, long list. There are a lot of things that are non-negotiable to us, aren't there? But what I'm talking about are things that help us grow spiritually. Let's narrow it down to that. What is it that's non-negotiable? You wouldn't trade it. You wouldn't stop it. You wouldn't give it up for anything. I'm ahead of you on the game. I knew I was going to ask the question, so I've written a short list. In fact, I created a series on this. We may come back to talk about this further at some point in time. We're going to talk about one of these points today. But one of the things that I would hope is non-negotiable in your life is the whole prospect of communicating with God. Just let your mind dwell on that for a minute. Communicating with God. You've heard me say so many times, God is not just man written in capital letters. He's totally, wholly different. Totally, wholly other. He's not just the big man upstairs. Think of all the power in the world. It's measured by the power of God. Think of all the knowledge of the world. His is immeasurable. Ours is measurable. Ours is finite. His is infinite. Think of all the love in the world. Ours is definitely finite. And corrupted many times, many cases. His is incorruptible and infinite. Would you give up communicating to this God? Especially when he invites you to? That's the irony of this. He doesn't need us. But he wants us. He tells us to talk to him. How do we rate? I wouldn't give that up. Not on your life. Something else that I think we wouldn't give up is worshiping God. True worship. I'm not talking about just singing songs. I'm talking about when we enter into it. True worship has been said to be a sign of intimacy. It also fosters it. Now again, let your mind dwell on this. Is this a privilege or what? To truly worship. To, to somehow have the Holy Spirit pull back the drapes of heaven a little bit and let us see it is, who it is we are worshiping. The awesomeness of who he is. You've had experiences like that, I'm sure. Would to God that happened every week. But there have been times, those special times in our lives, as though the Shekinah glory of God was resting on our shoulders. It was so real, so palatable. I don't want to give that up. I wish I had more experiences like that. Third thing is drawing strength from and contributing to other people. That's non-negotiable. We're made for each other. When we isolate ourselves and cut ourselves off from other people, either from what they have to offer or from what we have to offer, something sacrilegious is going on. In Christian circles, we call this interaction fellowship. 
And it's dynamic to be able to live our lives interdependently. Especially with other people who take their lead from the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest encouragements I could give anyone who's not yet a believer in Christ is this. Come to Him. Come to Him. You have everything to gain. You have nothing to lose. And when you come to Him, you'll find out what kind of family you become a part of. Really. I mean, when the church is living up to its potential, there's nothing like it. To be a part of the body of Christ is just awesome. A family of people dependent upon and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Imperfect, certainly, but yielded, yes. And when that happens, God shows up in flesh and blood. In your neighbor, in your friend who also needs Christ, and in your life. Another non-negotiable is getting counsel and encouragement from, and guidance from the Word of God. Don't ever trade it. There have been people who set this book aside saying, well, i got enough of it now, now I'll go on autopilot, and I'll make up my own theology. They almost always end up in a cult or an ism, or worse, living a pagan life. Not only does God want us to talk to Him and He to us, He does talk to us through His Word. It's incredible. The practical wisdom that has been made known to, uh, to us through the people who he inspired to document the history and give us direction and foretell the future. These are non-negotiables. There's another non-negotiable. This is the one we're going to talk about today. The non-negotiable of giving what God gives us to other people. So that's just for those who are inclined in that direction. Not on your life. This is a privilege for all of us. This should be a non-negotiable if we've decided to follow Christ in our lives. And actually, unless we've been messed with, it becomes a strong desire. When you come to Christ, you want other people to know him. It's only Satan who derails, derails that sense of passion. What it consists of is doing anything in the world that would be helpful to others in Jesus' name. It's hard to find one word to capture all of this. We often use the word evangelism, but that can be narrow. Let's broaden it out a little bit. Expression. Let's call it expression. Because that includes something else as well. So we're going to ask some questions of this thing of giving expression to the faith today. First of all, the question we're going to ask is, what does giving expression to the faith include there are two very specific things. We've already alluded to them. One is evangelism. Typically when we think of evangelism, we think of introducing someone who doesn't know Christ to Christ, right? We think of helping them respond to his great love for them in such a way that they want to turn around their life and go his way rather than the way they've been going. That's evangelism. The other specific thing having to do with this thing of expression, in addition to evangelism, is doing good for those who do not follow Christ. We're going to come back to this in a minute and flesh it out. Most people I know who come to Christ begin to notice sooner or later an increased interest in the lives of other people. 
an interest in their general well-being as well as their spiritual well-being. So since most people don't care what we know about Christ until they know that we care about them, we could call doing good, short of evangelism, short of articulating how they come to Christ, doing good in their lives, we could call that pre-evangelism. Together, they form what we call expression. Now, unfortunately, well-meaning people have, of faith have sometimes erred on each side of these two issues. And those of you who've been a believer for a while, you know this. In fact, maybe you, well, almost inevitably we've all failed in some respect at some point in time. Some have erred to the point of not taking time to show Christ's love, but just sort of practicing what we call in-your-face evangelism. You go up to a perfect stranger, you talk to them in ways you wouldn't talk to your friend or your neighbor, whom you know well, and it's the turn or burn, repent or perish form of, appro uh, form of approach to get them to follow Christ. And even though there's just cause to be concerned about someone possibly dying without Christ, this tact usually does little to win friends and influence people positively anyway. And we all know people who've been turned off for years because someone assaulted them with the gospel. So that's an error. Others have stressed doing good and have built strong bridges into other people's lives by doing good, feeding them, clothing them, helping them in one way or another. But they've never crossed over the bridge to articulate to, with them or to them, tell them about the hope and the fulfillment there is in Christ. Their good, even though done in Christ's name and love, has amounted to little more than human, humanitarian effort. And in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, there was a very popular, very vogue approach to uh, church life called the social gospel. That's what it came to be called. And people actually began to think in some circles that we don't have to articulate the love of Christ. We just need to show the love of Christ. If we feed them and clothe them, that's evangelism. That is not evangelism. It's necessary. It's pre-evangelism. It's part of our expression. We're to do good in this world. But they can be fully clothed in a Hart Schaffner Mark suit and have a full belly and still go to hell. They need Christ. So we need to blend both worlds together. The best and most biblical approach to expression, if we can use that term, is when both evangelism and doing good for other people get married and live their life together in this world. Now let me ask you another question. Why do good? We've already responded to that somewhat, but we should spend a little more time on it just in case we think doing evangelism only is all there is to influencing others. I want to share five reasons. You can write them down, but they're, actually you can take notes on them because they're already in your outline. We should do good so that other people will give God praise. We should do good so that other people will give God praise. Jesus told his followers to be salt and light, right? Salt preserves and flavors. We're also called then to, to bear light to those around us. Listen to what the Bible says about this. Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men that they may see, listen, that they may see your good deeds 
and as a result of that, praise your Father in heaven. Now this may not seem it much, much at first glance, but let's realize the implications. Through our behavior, through our behavior, we can become a means of God getting favorable attention from other people. I'd like to have that to my credit. My behavior has influenced someone to the point that they began to call out on God and recognize the validity of God in their life, the value of God in their life, the necessity of God in their life. Little old you and little old me can have a role in this world. I don't know about you, that, that sounds impressive to me. I've never had an overabundance of self-confidence, but to know that God can use me, that I can be salt and light and will be, and I need to be more intentional about that. Can you think of anything better we could do with our lives? There's an old story. One of the first illustrations I think I ever used when I went into the ministry came to mind yesterday. Horse and buggy days. These two old farmers. I don't know what the deal was with them, but they didn't waste any love on each other. At least one didn't waste any love on the other one. They lived right next to each other. One would never talk to the other one. One day, the one farmer who was a Christian man was going into town and he got stuck with his horse and wagon. There was sort of a low spot in the road, it had been washed out, there was a lot of mud down there. He thought he could make it through, but he couldn't. And lo and behold, guess what? His neighbor set out for town too. And he saw his friend in the, in the ditch, couldn't get out, in the ruts. He never said a word. He steered his wagon around high ground and went around through the field, kept right on going to town. A little later that day, this Christian neighbor got himself out. It's a lot of work, but he got himself out. He got to town. He's on his way home. He comes over the hill. He spies at the bottom of the hill in the same quagmire he'd been involved in himself that morning. His neighbor, he's stuck. He thought it dried out enough, but it hadn't. He's stuck. So what's he do? He begins to steer a path around him. Gets to the other side of him. Stops his team. Never says a word. Unhitches his horses. Backs them up. Hooks onto the two wagon, the two, the, the two horse hitch the other guy had. Now it's four horses. Talk about horsepower. Without saying a word, he pulled his neighbor out of the ditch. It was a matter of days before they were talking. It was a matter of weeks before they became friends. In a matter of months, that unbelieving farmer became a believer in Christ. Why? Good works. Good works. We should live so that other people will give God's praise. That's why we should do good. Secondly, we should live for our own personal enrichment here and beyond. You say, what? That sounds selfish. Well, listen to the text. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. Paul says this. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Listen to this. Commend them to do good and to be rich in good deeds 
and to be generous and willing to share. Here's the kicker. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm, uh, pardon me, as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. We don't do it just so that we're enriched, but when we do good in other people's lives, we are enriched through some means, through some manner, through some form. My father-in-law really lived quite a life. He was in his 90s when he died. He went from here to here in terms of income stream. He owned an automobile dealership in Northfield, Minnesota, and he lost it during the Depression. And seven kids graced their home in time. And he learned a lot about life, and he learned a lot about treasures. And he had a few one-liners. He wasn't known for his jokes. I laughed at him telling his jokes more than I laughed at the punchline of his jokes. But he had a couple of great one-liners relative to this thing of material wealth. He would say this, You can't take it with you, but you sure can send it on ahead. That's what we're talking about here. Laying up treasure for themselves. He also said, You know, I've never yet seen a a U-Haul... Let me rephrase, start over again and get it right. I've never yet seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. The idea is do what you can do for God here and now and lay up treasures in heaven for yourself. Investing in what is eternal is what real living is all about. Think of how trivially we live our lives at times. Not consciously investing, not intentionally investing in anyone or anything. Look at life. It's here. It's gone. It's done. Like the t-shirt that boasts, football is life, everything else is just details. The life that is truly life is so far beyond anything else we do in this world. To do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share is supposed to be our mantra, supposed to be who we are. So why do good? For our own enrichment. Have a real value system, God's value system, investing in the lives of other people. This life will soon be passed, somebody said one time. Only what's done for Christ will last. Third reason we should do good is it sets the right example. Paul wrote a letter to Titus, and in it he talks to him about his relationships with those he was influencing for Christ. And I want you to catch one line from Titus 2.7. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. That's great counsel. That is phenomenal counsel. Now, we're not talking about being a do-gooder devoid of the gospel. Be a friend who does good with the gospel. That's the reason when my kids are growing up, whenever I could, I included them in what I was doing pastorally. I remember taking my kids calling with me when it was appropriate. I was a consultant for Gospel Light Publications, which is a major independent evangelical Christian publishing house. And they had uh, a number of consultants across the country 
these were guys and gals who were gainfully employed in ministry, uh, but because of their background in Christian education, and whether it was youth ministry or whatever it might be, we would do occasional part-time stuff for Gospel Light. And I had to do these VBS workshops, many of them up in Oshkosh. And I would take my kids with me. They loved it. Then it got to the point where they're a little too old, they're a little too cool to do that. You know, this kid stuff, Dad, it's okay. But listen, I got my licks in when I could. And I think there's a value in that. The fact of the matter is none of us ever left home with enough parenting. We said that last week. And neither with our children. God knows they're going to see some things in our lives we wish they wouldn't see. Let's make sure they see some things in our lives we want them to see. Let's just live so that the good they see is more significant than the not so good they're going to inevitably see within our lives. Sets the right example to do good. Fourthly, it demonstrates the reality of faith. James presents a formidable challenge to the people to whom he writes. I love the, the epistle of James. Martin Luther called it the right straw epistle. He didn't like it much. But it really lays some things down about faith. Listen to this. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. The challenge from James is, show me your faith without deeds. Go ahead, I dare you. Because he's really implying you can't do it. I'll show you my faith by what I do. And his point is direct. It's impossible to show true faith without deeds. There isn't such a thing. In James, James says, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Dead, gone, non-existent. Faith by itself will show actions. It's possible to find action without faith. We see it all the time. But it's not possible to find true faith without action. So doing good demonstrates the reality of faith. And then lastly, it's a logical response after experiencing God's mercy. The Bible says, he that is forgiven much loves much. I believe that's very true. Very true. Paul reminds us of this when he says in Romans 12:1, I urge you, brothers, sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now notice just a couple of things. This, this is a rich, rich passage. Romans 12, well, all of Romans 12, but th these words are incredibly significant. First thing is this. Even though it is a logical response Paul is calling for, it may still take a timely reminder such as Paul is giving in order to do the right thing. Because we're all inevitably busy and our, our, our uh, good intentions can get lost in our to-do pile. We all get caught up in other things. So that's one thing we need to notice. Second thing we need to notice is this. Responding by giving ourselves to God in service is not something we do in order to receive mercy. It's very important to see this. There are a lot of people who think they're, they're, the, the, the whole idea of being finally accepted by God is I've got, I've got to do enough good. Paul is telling us we don't do good in order to receive mercy. We do good out of gratitude as a result of having received mercy. This is the biblical understanding. In fact, literally, these words read like this. Having been mercied. 
Present your bodies to Christ. Done deal in the past, having received mercy, completed action in the past, perfect tense. Having been mercied, present your bodies to Christ. So there you have it. Why do good? Well, there's five reasons. You could probably find some more. But the whole idea is we cannot afford not to do good. It's easy, easy even as believers in Christ not to do good. We've got to pinch ourselves, remind ourselves, goad ourselves, kick ourselves, discipline ourselves, be intentional. Or we're just like any other church. Let's ask another question. What are some good things we can do? Seems kind of like a logical question, doesn't it? Well, we can learn to introduce somebody else to Christ. You say, oh boy, here he goes again. He's hammering on this time and time again. We've done classes on it. We've stressed it. Yes, and we'll continue to stress it because we need to know how to introduce somebody to Christ. And here's what happens. We all have a little fear factor within our lives, and we punt. We want to give that responsibility to somebody else. Well, somebody must have the gift of evangelism. I think what happens is we have the gift of fear, so we're afraid to do evangelism, so we want it to be somebody else's gift. We should all know how to introduce somebody to Christ. We've offered a one-day class on that. We've offered a three-week class on that. We'll offer other classes, should I be here long enough, because this is important. In your relationships, it may someday fall right in your lap. Someone may almost ask you how they can come to peace with God, and you better know how to tell them. Start with this. If you're not certain how to introduce somebody to Christ, start with writing out your own story. Write it out. It'll be very cathartic for you. I've had people come to me after I've asked them to do that with tears in their eyes, saying, you know, I began to write out my own story with the, with the view towards sharing it at some point in time. And she said, and one lady in particular I remember in Wisconsin said, I couldn't stop crying. Three paragraphs, you can do three paragraphs or three pages or three volumes, doesn't matter. But I would suggest a short one for sharing with your neighbor unless they fall asleep on you. Talk about what your life was like before you came to Christ. Now, if you've been raised in a Christian home, that'll be a short part probably. But your life was different as a result of coming to Christ. So talk about your life before you came to Christ. Talk about what your life has been like since you've come to Christ. Or pardon me. Talk about how you came to Christ. That's two. And then three, talk about what your life has been like since you've come to Christ. Let me repeat them because I messed them up. Talk about, how you're, talk about your life before you came to Christ. Talk about how you came to Christ. And talk about what your life has been like since you've come to Christ. It's very difficult for someone with an idea to refute somebody with an experience. And you need to share the reality of your experience with other people. So that's one thing we can do. Learn how to introduce someone else to Christ. Second thing we can do is assess the human need around us to which we can respond. Because all ministry starts at a point of need, right? In what way can I respond? None of us can respond to it all. But all of us can respond to something. I told you the story before, but I think it fits the bill here, so I'm going to tell it again. This little girl came up missing one day. Her mother looked in the front yard. She wasn't there. She looked in the backyard. She wasn't there. She looked in the side yard at the swing set. She wasn't there. Where is my daughter? And finally, the little girl came walking in the house, and she said, Honey, where have you been? 
She said, I was over at Mrs. Anderson's house next door. Mrs. Anderson had just lost her husband of some 50 or 60 years. And the mom says, you were at Mrs. Anderson's house. What were you doing? Oh, mama, I was just, big, big word for a little girl, I was comforting her. I was ministering to her. She'd been listening in Sunday school. And the mom said, what can a seven or eight-year-old girl say that's going to bring comfort and is going to minister to an 80-year-old lady? She said, honey, what did you say? A little fearful. She said, honey, what did you say? And the little girl said, oh, mom, I didn't say anything. I just sat with her, held her hand, and we cried together. Assess the human need around you and how you can respond. Who needs us? What's the need? Financial need? Emotional need? Some practical thing you can do? Taking them to the grocery store? Helping them with their kids? Fixing something in their home? Becoming a big brother, a big sister? Are we able? Then as Nike says, let's just do it. Let's just do it, church. Now, I'm not suggesting you're not doing it, but I'm cheering everybody on, and, and including those who haven't been doing it. Can you imagine what a difference it'll make in this community, how much stronger and how much more formidable our testimony will be if, as a church, we begin to look for do, ways we can do good in this community, and we're so intentional about it, we set aside some of our personal agenda items so we can get it done. Imagine the clout this will have. There are a lot of people who think, the church is just irrelevant. Well, no wonder they don't see enough of us in their lives. I had a guy tell me one time, I don't believe in organized religion. To which I responded, well, come to our church. We're very disorganized. <laughs> That's a cop-out. There have been a lot of people that have been immunized against the gospel by the church. Let's not let it not be said of those of us at Elam that people have turned off of Christianity because of us. There's a third thing we can do. We can assess what motivates us in life. By doing this, we may find our niche for long-term ministry. See, working with teens may not be your thing, but working with single moms may be. Counseling may not be your thing, but doing auto maintenance or house repair may be. And if you don't know what motivates you, try different things on for size. Just, just do things. What you may find could not only be your motivation, but it could even be the area in where your gift will be used. I, I want to illustrate this, and I'm a little dubious about the illustration I'm going to use because I don't want anybody to think I'm bragging. This is not braggadocious. I just want to tell you what happened when City Church got started in the city. I want to give you three premises. We live by these premises, and I think this is good counsel for anybody. The first you're very familiar with. Move in the direction you feel God would have you go. God can't use a stationary object. You've heard me say that many times. The second is similar. Do whatever you can do, even if it isn't much. And thirdly, respond to need wherever you find it. The very essence of ministry is to begin at whatever point of need you identify. That's ministry. I'll repeat those again in a minute. They're in your outline. 
But let me just tell you how City Church got started. I'd been pastoring a church in Wisconsin for 10 years, left, had no place to go, left without a place to go, took a well-deserved, needed sabbatical, read voraciously, prayed uh, earnestly, and asked God for what next in our lives. And eventually, urban, the urban environment came into focus. And I'll make a long story short. I could tell you a whole lot about what happened there, but anyway, we committed ourselves to urban ministry. We, it was an 11th hour decision not to go to a church as an associate pastor in Chicago, two blocks from Wrigley Field. That's urban. And we decided rather than to do that that we'd move to Minneapolis because I was somewhat familiar with Minneapolis. We had relatives up here as well. And we've just begun to turn over the rocks to see what God might do. So we came to Minneapolis. We lived the first 10 months with my wife's brother and his wife out in Chaska. It's where our youngest child, our son, began high school. He spent his freshman year at Chaska High School. Our oldest daughter, Sarah, was uh, living with us. She graduated from Trinity. She worked in a bakery. Uh, she was a youth ministry major, but the doors hadn't opened for that yet. Our middle daughter had just gone, left for college that, that fall. She was at Trinity. And we began to pray, and, uh, or, not, or continue to pray about what to do. And I had a job out in the in Chaska area, and I would get into the city whenever I could. I was just meeting anybody I could to, I could to learn more about the city and what the opportunities were. We threw our name in the, in the hat for a couple of churches looking for pastors. Nothing happened. Um, and so we raised some money. We moved into the city. We rented half of a side-by-side duplex at 56 in Garfield. And we began, we just continued to turn these rocks over. What's here, Lord? What would you have us do? We put together a team. Let's put that first slide up, Julie. Can you see that very well? We put together a team of college students to work with us one summer. We surveyed and prayer walked a huge area, what we considered sort of our Jerusalem in South Minneapolis, from 42nd Street to 52nd Street, from Cedar Avenue to Lindale Avenue. We prayer walked all of it. And we surveyed all of it. Now, you don't find a lot of people home if you just survey in the evening. So we surveyed during the, I, I mean, if you, don't, if you just surveyed during the day. So we surveyed day and night. And it took a long time. And then we got involved in some sample ministry stuff. We did some clowning, as you can see here. One of our daughters is one of those clowns. And we went to McRae Park and, and we just were testing the waters. And in 97, it took a while, but in 97, we launched City Church. And we wanted to have a presence in the community. We didn't want to just be behind the walls. And in fact, we had no place to meet. We started at Washburn High School in their auditorium. And the principal was a Christian man. He allowed us to put a, our sign. We had a big envelope sign that covered the school sign. City Church meets here Sundays, 10 a.m., and we began to minister in the community as best we could. We started uh, an urban mobile puppet or children's ministry, a puppet van. And uh, it was my brother-in-law's van. We'd pull it up along the curve. We had prearranged with um, uh, a host family to use their front yard. We'd open the doors. We'd put a little barrier there so the kids couldn't see in and we'd raise the puppets up from behind it we did puppet shows it was mesmerizing for these kids and then one day we saw this old 1950 chevy pickup truck and well that's like a moving billboard it gets those old vehicles get a lot of attention in the city so we were able to pick this up for a song 
That's my son standing in front of it. He loved it, and um, as you might well expect. And we built a little thing on the back we could do puppet shows out of, and we were in business. And we, would, uh, we had certain homes we'd go to. We were out several nights a week. We were out several places each night we were out. And um, in fact, one night we were running short on places and we still had daylight. I stopped at a lady's house and just went up and says, uh, I told her who I was, what we were doing. Could we use your front yard? Because there are a lot of kids in that neighborhood. She said, sure, go ahead. So we did. So let's move on. We gather kids like this. We learned early on to put a tarp on the ground because it kept the kids corralled. You all got to sit on the tarp now. Most of them did. Some of them didn't. Some never listened to anybody. Uh, let's go again and again. You can see the crowds, small crowds, but they were there. And again and again and again. I wonder what this is like for people listening on the Internet. And again, we were able to pick up a 1988 Star Tribune step van. You know those green vans that deliver newspapers around the city? We repainted it, and um, we modified the side of it so that whole side behind the passenger door let down into a stage. Go to the next slide, if you will. And this thing was incredible. We would come around the corner with this, and it was like the ice cream man was in the neighborhood. Kids would come running so that they didn't miss their... It was, a, it was like a VBS on wheels. We did crafts, we had snacks, we had games, we had Bible stories, we interacted with the kids. Um, it was unbelievable. Let's just slowly scroll those through those, Julie. You can see us in action here in South Minneapolis, just on a city street. Go to the next one. 1937 Chevy flatbed. What in the world do you do with that? Well, we found out from the 1950 Chevy that it was a billboard. I mean, I'd get gestures like this, you know, driving that Chevy down the street. Now, I've gotten a lot of finger gestures when I've driven. <laughs> but a thumbs up is what you want. <clears throat> this was what we haul our street hoops with. And it, too, was a mobile billboard. One night at, during the City Kids stuff, Kids Ministry, I noticed this cool dude standing in the background with a basketball under his arm. Too cool to participate with these children and the children's thing that was going on with puppets. Hey, I'm 14 years old. What do I do with puppets? But he was listening. We thought, aha. That sort of coincided with the fact that somebody from Grace Church, when they were in Edina, offered us a, basket, a portable basketball unit. Before we could take the delivery of that unit, um, it got wrecked. But the seed was sown. Basketball is huge in the city. You can go to any park and the kids are hooping it all the time. So we thought, why not harness this? Why not take advantage of it? Here it comes under this premise again. Um, do whatever you can do, even if it isn't much. We didn't have a lot of money. We couldn't do a lot. We didn't have a big high profile, but we could meet kids. And so actually, after City Church merged with Central Community Church, uh, I became like an associate pastor there. I had more time on my hands. So we began to really develop this. And we were serving other churches. You see on the bottom of that sign, if you can read it, it says North Minneapolis Christian Fellowship. We did a clinic for them. A clinic consisted of, most of the time, Joe Heiser, the basketball coach from South High School, who was third in the state about that time, so he knew what he was doing in terms of basketball. Christian man. He was our chief clinician. 
We start the night out with skills and drills, how to pass, how to shoot, how to dribble, this sort of thing, dexterity drills and so forth. Then the latter part of the evening was given to scrimmaging. We'd, uh, we'd, we'd put them onto teams and we'd play games. But always in the middle at break time was a talk to. And we shared the gospel. And we were realistic about it. We didn't ask anybody to hit the sawdust trail. But we shared the gospel. We made it plain, usually through somebody's testimony. And you know there are times, let's just scroll through those slowly, if you will, Julie. Uh, oh, stop at that one a second. You notice, here's what we're talking about. Notice our byline there. City Works, Inc., in the city for good. Titus 2.7. In the city for good. Okay, you can scroll. We, we drew big crowds for this thing. Here we are at Corcoran Park. Now, we couldn't go into Corcoran Park. There's the basketball units in the back of the trailer. We're setting up one night. <clears throat> we couldn't go into Corcoran Park and talk about God very freely. Separation of church and state. But those guys at Corcoran Park, park staff, loved us because we took the kids off their hands for a little while. It was a very busy park. A lot of kids around all the time. And uh, what we could do is run a three-night clinic and then get a mailing list going and then mail a card to every kid who was at the clinic telling them that in two weeks we're going to be on the parking lot at Word of Grace Baptist Church at the, on 38th Street. Why don't you come? And there we shared the gospel. But you can just see the crowd. That's at Corcoran Park. Next one. That's at Corcoran Park. We had as high as 125 people uh, at our street hoops at times. North side would 60, 70 kids. Parents would come out to watch their kids, hoping they'd all make it to the NBA. This is on the parking lot at Word of Grace Baptist Church. We did this for about three years, that scheme, where we go to Corcoran Park and we go to Word of Life Baptist Church. Keep going. I put this in there because this little guy was way too little to play, but he found a basketball and used it as his chair and watched the action. Next one. Then we, uh, again, two things converged. Somebody from Grace offered us a weight set. Can you use this in your ministry? Uh, not sure yet, but we'll take it. And then we ran into a few problems one summer with the accessibility of the weight room at Washburn High School. My son was going to high school there playing football. And uh, oh, actually, by this time, he was at Bethel, I guess. But um, we decided, why don't we open a youth and neighborhood fitness center?